First John chapter three, beginning in verse one. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, let's seek the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the realities that we've been given in Scripture already this morning. Some of them are difficult for us to hear, but they're real. And so we are thankful, God. We are a people that prefer the shadowy edges of religion. We use church gatherings to hide from you until you conquer us, until you show us the truth. We thank you that the truth is not all bad news. We think of the things we just sang, Augustus Toplady's wonderful words about the double impact of Christ's saving work, cleansing and freeing us. We come to you this morning to lay our praises before your throne. We feel, as we've already said in in our earlier time, God, that our Best words fall so far short of the reality of what we want to express to you. And our greatest desires, our highest thoughts of you, even those fall short of you. But we come as children to a father, as subjects to a king, as worshipers to a God. You are unlike any other person we have met. You are all perfection. Without limit or measure. There is no edge to any of your glories. Your excellence transcends our greatest estimation. And we cannot exaggerate your goodness. But we live so often, God, we confess it with small thoughts of you. And our choices demonstrate that. So we ask that where real life has started in individuals here this morning, that you would continue it and maintain it, that it would flourish. You're the perfect gardener. You can do that. And where there has never been life and religion is still words on a page only, um, God You can bring us out of a grave. We thank you for choosing to make us children that are adopted into your family, as amazing as that sounds, that we might enjoy the privileges as if we had been born there naturally, that through the finished work of Christ and our union with him, that that intimate connection, that unbreakable, everlasting connection has resulted in us being his kin's people, his, his brothers, his sisters. 
God, we thank you that in choosing your son to be our redeemer, you sent the greatest champion and with the great purpose of destroying every aspect of sins, twisting and ruining and destroying and polluting effects, not just in an individual's life, but in all of creation. So we ask that you would help us to back up from ourselves today, to back up from our own um, ups and downs of the week, and to see you and the great work of redemption, and that that would take hold of our imagination, that we would understand it in a way we've never understood it before, that we would delight in it, and that we would prove all of that by walking out of this building today with feet set on a path of cheerful obedience. Help us, God. We are a needy people. And without you, Lord, we would have no hope at all. But we do have you. And so we pray, come and work. And don't leave us to ourselves. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want us to return to the theme of uh, discipleship again. And you remember that in the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the words that Christ says about the life of a Christian. And he uses these terms, discipleship and follower. And so there is much more to the Christian life than just uh, believing uh, a list of facts or embracing certain doctrines, or even altering our lives, you know, in those unique times of our schedule, Sunday mornings, where we, we become religious and, you know, different. There, there are things that are different about us. Being a Christian is, is a lifelong commitment where we've entered into a relationship with God through the God-man. And in that wonderful relationship, there is this dynamic of him molding and transforming us. It's not just a teacher and a pupil, it's a discipler and a disciple, or it's an, it's an apprentice and, you know, the master. There is a, there's an authority in this relationship. It's, it's not the kind of thing where we can come to the word of God if we're Christians and say, well, this is a passage I agree with, or I, I find this very helpful, but this passage I'm not so sure about. So it entails everything. And discipleship is, is this relationship with the God-man, with him having all the authority, in which his character is being fashioned in us. So his plans, his delights, his hates, his, his way of thinking about everything, his way of responding to the Father, and his way of responding to the people all around you, those things become a determinative and fashioning force in your life. So that every day, or every month, every year, the Christian is being made into the image of Christ. We've been talking about that, and when you think about the life of a disciple, it can be uh, a bit overwhelming, and we've been looking at Christ and his sufficiency and trying to step back away from ourselves. We look in the mirror and we say, uh, could I be a follower of Jesus Christ? I, I don't mean, you know, in words only, but in, in earnest. Could I really be discipled by Christ today? In 2023, here, in a place that the Jews could hardly have imagined, could it be more than a set of doctrines? Could it be more than a set of moral codes that I embrace, ethics? Could it be more than a sense of community with a group of people who share those doctrines and ethics? Could it be a relationship with the living God in which there is a constant give and take? There's a constant transaction occurring between him and my soul? Could I be taught on the job kind of training how to follow Christ today? And not just today, and could anyone do that, but 
could that be true, true of me? When we look in the mirror, I think that even Christians who have been followers of Christ for a long time, there is that kind of nagging question, is Christ really enough for that? For me, maybe for others, yes, but what about me? It's the kind of question you can't answer on a, on a piece of paper. I, I wish it were that easy, that we could just, you know, if, if we could just get our, ourselves to say, okay, well, based on these things that I see, uh, and the historical evidence of how that they've been displayed in other believers before us, I believe that he's enough to disciple anyone who comes to him on his terms. But you can't answer it on paper. It's the kind of thing that you have to answer every morning you wake up. Uh, it's answered by how you live. And, and, as I just mentioned, it's not the kind of thing you can answer once and to get it right once. And then you go on. It's the kind of thing you have to get right daily. It's not an effortless thing, but there is an answer and there is help for that answer. So we want to look at that a little more today. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the sufficiency of Christ in his excellence. Is he enough? Is he worth it? And the answer to those questions is absolutely. But how specifically does the scripture reveal Christ to be more than sufficient, not just to uh, forgive you or to, you know, to, to kind of make you a better you, but to really to make you alive and to make you his and to disciple you. So looking away from the disciple in the mirror and all your ups and downs, we look at the discipler. And that's one of the ways that we find the answer to that question, could I really be a follower of Christ today? We looked at the fact that he has made an infinite payment for our crimes. Christ is the sacrifice that God himself provided so that every aspect of the broken law of God would be honorably and justly satisfied in his death. The payment has been paid Christ has not only washed his people by that great work, but in his perfect obedience to the law, everyone who, who embraces him, I mean, really embraces him, in that wonderful union with Christ, there is also a, a positive righteousness. That's the way theologians say it. In other words, you don't just get washed, you're clothed with the right kind of clothes, with an obedience Shared with you, placed upon your account, you know, it's a, it's kind of it's a bookkeeping term justified to be declared right with God, not just clean, but right as if you had done all the law required because of what Christ did. And that is attributed to the believer. So we stand before God washed, robed and no fear of any future condemnation. That's wonderful, but that is, if that's all that Christ has done or can do, then that's not enough to make any of you or me a disciple. There's more. We looked at the fact that Christ is sufficient to attract, to captivate, and hold our heart's deepest desires, that he really satisfies the longings that he's created you with. We talked about the fact that Christ in his infinite payment for sin also possesses an infinite willingness to continue to apply that even to a believer, not just once when, we, when you first come to him, but the thousandth time when as a believer you realize that you have again chosen self above him. And certainly we all, we, you know, we're tempted to wonder, has he grown weary of our friendship we grow weary of people. Has he grown weary of us? Has he removed us from his family? And if he hasn't, why not? And we looked at the biblical evidence for Christ possessing an infinite willingness to apply again the pardon that he purchased at the cross to his followers and to restore them. Those are not just empty words for a Christian. Those are really life and death. But if that's all that Christ has done, he is not enough to disciple you. You wouldn't be able to be a disciple. So today we're going to look at another aspect 
that aspect of Christ where he is sufficient to separate us, to make us holy, to grow us in holiness. Let me, let me give you a quick illustration of this kind of, this question that comes to our mind. You know, can, could he do that? You know that we often quote a, a missionary to India named Amy Carmichael. She was in India toward the latter decade of the 19th century into the first half of the eight, uh, 20th century. And so she was there for over 50 years without a furlough. And she was a single woman that you know that God used in southern India to rescue little girls and then also little boys from the Hindu temple prostitution system, which at that time, India was officially denying existed. Amy Carmichael wrote in one of her books about a young convert that was named, that the, the, um, the girls that were converted usually got a new name. They, they laid aside their Hindu name and picked uh, another name. And so they called her Star, a Star of Grace. So if you've read Amy Carmichael's books, you'll remember this girl named Star. Well, how did she become a Christian? Star was a young girl in a high caste Hindu family, very proud. And Star was bothered that as a person of a high caste family, even as a child, she was aware of the fact that she had a terrible temper and she was a monster with her brothers and sisters. And when she would be embarrassed by her inability to kind of keep herself in check, she would talk, uh, you know, she would pray to the Hindu gods and make the sacrifices and ask the Hindu gods if they would uh, change her character. She asked her father, is there any of our gods? There are 300 million Hindu gods. So there are, which one of them should I pray to in order to have my character changed? And this was her father's response. Child, I know of no God that can make a bad disposition into a good one. That is something you're going to have to do yourself. So she began to beg the different gods and she didn't get any better. She, she just felt worse about herself. And then she heard a foreign missionary preaching. And the foreign missionary said this, there is a living God and he turned me, a lion, into a lamb. That stuck with her. There is a living God that can make a person who had this bad disposition, acted like a lion, turned this person into a lamb. Then he could do that for me. So she talked to her father about that. She began to pray to the living God. She didn't know anything more about God than that. And she began to say, if there is a living God then please send the foreign people back to our village so that I can hear more. And soon, Amy Carmichael and the group of ladies came back to her village, and she met Amy Carmichael and spoke with her and learned about the work of Christ and his person. She went home and told her parents that she would, from now on, hope in this living God. And her parents beat her, and they threatened to marry her off to an, a, a very old man who was a pagan they you know they they were uh, they were horrified that their upper class family was so dishonored by this girl wanting to follow Christ with the low class indians who had been converted eventually nothing worked and so they sent her to live with an uncle because the uncle was a lower caste hindu and so his life wasn't very nice so the thought was this if I don't hurry this up, we'll be here all day. The thought is this. You go live with those people over there. And some of those Indians in that village have actually been so stupid as to embrace this message of a crucified Jew. Go see how they live. And it is so far beneath how we live. Then you'll see that that's an empty hope. And you will get rid of this foolish notion of following Jesus. And you'll come back to our family, our caste, and our gods. Now, there were many people in that town that claimed to be Christians, Indians, who weren't, but there were genuine believers, and she, through them, 
continued to hear the truths of Christ and was wonderfully saved and eventually became a worker with Amy Carmichael. Her question is the question that I think has to be asked in New Albany this morning. Not by people out there, people here, us. Is there any God? We've heard of a God that can forgive, but it, has anyone ever heard of a God that actually alters a person's character, their disposition, to change them from bad to good? So I want us to look at the person of Christ again today, and I want us to consider how sufficient he is to enable us, having fully forgiven us, to really follow him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at that issue of forgiveness, we used the illustration of a royal pardon. Do you remember? Or a presidential pardon. Governments throughout the world often give their leaders the ability to pardon a criminal or an accused person. So we have presidential pardons. But I mentioned that back during the Revolutionary War, King George, I think it was the third, forget which George it was sometimes, George sends a proclamation to the colonies. And at this time, we're fighting against, you know, England so that we can have our independence. And the proclamation was given in Boston and throughout the colonies. And it basically said this, if you will lay down your weapons and quit fighting against your rightful king, you will be freely forgiven and there will be no repercussions for your rebellion. And this is for every one of you, except two. Samuel Adams and John Hancock, they had done something so offensive to the king that he would not offer them pardon no matter what they did. And when we, when we use that illustration, we, we looked at the fact that Christ offers that pardon as the gospel command goes out to believe, to come, to repent, to follow. And if you come to him on his terms, there, there are no exceptions. He doesn't say, unless you're this kind of person or unless you're this old or unless you have done these things. Now, I want to take that illustration again and bring it to this topic today about holiness. Why don't presidents who can pardon, why don't they empty the prisons of America? And just say to every prisoner, you can go now. Why have we never heard of any world ruler, any king offering amnesty or a forgiveness or a pardon to every prisoner in their nation? Well, we know the reason. It's because of fear. If we empty our prisons, there's no guarantee that the people that have been set free from prison wouldn't go immediately back into the same lifestyle that got them into prison. It would be a very... You know, it would be an insanely dangerous idea to just empty prisons. Unless you were a, rule, a world ruler who had the ability that when he pardoned, he could be guaranteed that every person freed would be changed. Then he could empty the prisons. When Christ is described as the one who can, by his death, and obedience, remove the deepest stains of our most shameful things and provide for us a perfect rightness with God so that our legal standing with him is completely altered. Are you never afraid that that means that people who say I'm fully forgiven for sins, past, present, future, will just live careless, destructive lives? Are you never afraid that you will do it? I remember as a young Christian um, meeting with uh, a man who led me to the Lord and then, you know, talked with me, discipled me, talked with me a lot about following the Lord. And I remember one time that he had been talking about the love of Christ and how that changes things. And I had just made a very clear, selfish decision. And so it bothered me that he kept talking about the love of God. I, so I interrupted him and I said, his name was Clyde. Some of you have read his book. And I said, Clyde, I don't need to hear about the love of Christ. I need to hear about like punishment because if you keep talking to me about love, I think I'll just live this selfish, careless life. And he assured me that was impossible. Why? 
Because there is something about the work of Christ and the person of Christ that guarantees that every person he pardons will be transformed. There are quite a few things that the scripture gives to um, to explain this, to show us why this happens. I'm only going to be able to hit a few of them today and we'll just kind of mention them and get going. And then if you want the notes, you can shoot me a text or an email and I'll try to get you the notes. How do we know that you, how do I know that I could be a disciple of Christ? It's going to take more than forgiveness. I need a discipler who can transform everyone he forgives. And Christ does. There is in Christ an infinite ability and willingness to separate us and to fashion us in his image. Or we just use the word to sanctify us or to make us holy. Now, that is a desire. Before we look at the reasons, I do want to say that is a desire that every true Christian has. I don't know any real Christian who would say that all they want from God is a get out of hell free card, you know, get out of jail free card. I want to be able to sleep at night. I want my conscience to leave me alone. All right, let's just, can you just fix this? And then I can get on doing what I do best, you know, living for myself. I don't know any Christian that's even willing to come to God and say, here's me. Uh, You can take me. I've made a wretched mess of this. But you could take me and make me, clean me up and, and make me a better me and then hand me back so that I have the happiness of ruling a better me. You know, John gets to be a better version of John. The Christian, because of the greatness of Christ's work, there is something fundamental to a Christian that makes him or her, whatever age they are, however imperfect we are, makes them say to God, I am so grateful for forgiveness, but that is not all I want. I need to know that there is, in this salvation you provided, there is enough to enable me to live for you. I want to live for you. Sometime back, I mentioned the my favorite Scottish author. Um, I mention him all the time, you know, Samuel Rutherford. In the mid-1600s, he was in prison for preaching in a way that the uh, English king didn't like when he said that the English king didn't have a right to tell the churches in Scotland what to do. Well, that put him in prison. And while he was in Aberdeen, in kind of under house arrest, he wrote letters back to his people. And, and in one of the letters back to his church folks, he wrote and said that, he was struggling with a question. And the question was this, which is the greater gift that God gives through Christ? Justification, being made right with God, legally forgiven. Or sanctification, being made like Christ in the way you live. And Rutherford said he didn't know which one was the greater He said he leaned towards sanctification. That was an even greater gift to be altered within so that we begin to look like Christ. So that at the end, when we stand before him face to face, we will be made complete, but not just forgiven, but but morally perfect with his moral perfection. Now, Rutherford's question, I think we could say there isn't really any answer to that. And you don't have to have an answer to that. I don't think you could say one is a greater gift than the other, but I mention that because that is not a thing that church folks generally ask until they meet Christ. And then we're not happy with just being told we are okay. But when a person desires to live for Christ, there's a big hurdle. When we realize that, you know, we've been saved so as to be transformed and not just not just to be forgiven, there is there are some problems that we have as believers. And one of the problems is that because that is something we know would honor God and we want that in our lives, but it is something that's incomplete. It's it's in process. We are in the midst of being changed, but because it will always be incomplete in this life then there is, in some measure, grief 
for the Christian. It bothers us that we're not more like Christ. And the longer we are Christians, the more clearly we see things as God sees them. We see things about us that are sinful that we didn't recognize these things earlier. And so sometimes you can feel like you're going backwards. The illustration we've used before about this is to imagine uh, kind of being on a journey. Um, and the illustration came from a Scottish person. I don't remember which one. If you go to Scotland, the highlands, they're, they're not like mountain ranges that go, you know, across the landscape. They're like individual big bumps. So they're not as high as our Rocky Mountains, but when you hike them, they're a real pain because you have to go up one. And once you get to the top, I remember hiking one time with a friend and thinking, you know, I was so out of shape. I'm like, I'm at the top. So now we'll just walk down the ridge, you know, we'll be on top of the range. And there was no mountain range. There was mountain. And the next mountain, there was a valley between it. And so I said, we got to go down and up for every mountain to get out of this place, you know, to get across the highlands. And whew, we didn't go very far. So the illustration that one writer gave of sanctification, of, of the progress of being made like Christ was this. Imagine that a Christian is a person who has been changed and your feet have been set on a new path. You have a new destination and you're brought to the top of one of those Scottish mountains and over, you know, from that mountain, you can see a long way and you can see a city and that's the new destination, right? Completion, Christ-likeness, that's the destination. Now, when you're standing on the mountain, you think, that looks like a few days push. I mean, I can do it. And so you start off on the journey and you go up and down and up and down. And you find it's a little harder than you expected. You're not quite instantly perfect. And maybe after weeks or months or even years, you look to see, you know, you're back up on top of a mountain and you look and you think, I haven't made any progress, you know. I, it doesn't look any closer. And so you walk a little while more and maybe you you're down in one of those valleys between the mountains and you look and you try to see the destination. You can't even see the place down in the valley and you think, I'm off the path. I've gone backwards. So for a Christian, that, that can be a pretty normal thing where we feel that no matter how long we have loved him, we're not really making much progress. So we need to know, is Christ enough to change us? Let me give you a number of things that the scripture gives us to show the sufficiency of Christ to make us holy. All right. So let me I'll give you just a quick list. Number one, in the scripture, we read that God, the father in his great plan of salvation has determined to make Jesus your holiness. If you're his, if you've embraced him, listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. That certainly was a group of people that were struggling with this whole issue of being transformed into Christ's image, of being made obedient and altered. We've read this verse a few weeks ago. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 30, we read this. But by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You've been united to him who became past tense, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We already talked about wisdom and righteousness. Let me just take the word sanctification or the word holiness. We may think of holiness as primarily stopping a list of the don'ts that we should never have done. Okay, there's, a, there's the do's and the don'ts. And the don'ts are usually what you think of when you think of holiness. I used to do all those. Now these are my list of don'ts. I don't do those. We might think of holiness as remaining as far as we can be, staying away from the old things that were wrong and that attracted us and keeping ourselves isolated from every moral impurity. But the Bible describes holiness differently. Now, that, that aspect, that negative aspect is there. But that's not where it starts. It's a consequence. Holiness is God separating you, which is what the word holiness means, to be separated. God separating you, setting you apart for himself, to be all his, for him to be 
yours so that when you gather in a building on Sunday and say, I am his and he is mine, it's not pure fiction. Christ does something, God says, that makes him your holiness or that guarantees that every follower of Christ is separated unto the Father and then transformed by that separatedness, that possessiveness. I belong to a new master, to God. And that newness starts to show in the way I act. So those two great things, positional sanctification, through the cross, Christ has guaranteed the holiness of everyone who embraces him. How? Having bought you and redeemed you out of slavery, he brings you to the Father and you are accepted. In the Old Testament, the whole picture of holiness oftentimes was given through distance, physical distance. God is not like us morally. God is in a holy of holies. You are not in the holy of holies. You're outside and there's a, there's a divider, the wall of the temple. And then some people get to come in a little further. And then there's more dividers. And some people, priests get to go a little further, maybe a little further, but only one priest once a year gets to go into the holy of holies. And all of that is done through sacrifice, through the, the death of these animals to show us the seriousness of our separation from God. In Christ, every Christian is purchased and cleansed and united to him. You are brought as close to him as possible. Positionally, you now belong to another kingdom, to another king. You're in another family. Those are things that are done the moment you embrace him once and for all. They cannot be reversed. But then there's that holiness that we usually think of day to day, progressive, practical changes in our lives that reflect this change. So we read wonderful statements like what Paul said to the church at Corinth in the first chapter of the first letter. He says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus saints or holy people by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now that's talking about that being set apart. You have been purchased and set apart to God. You're not what you used to be. But then that progressive sanctification where because God, we're separated unto God, the kind of a God that you're separated to alters you morally. If your God is uh, a God like the Greek gods or the Roman gods, you know, these gods, even if they were real, they were morally flawed, then being separated to them, you would expect a person to kind of reflect those flaws. But if you're set apart to a living God that is pure, then the kind of a God that you belong to changes how you live. What we want, what we think is of real value, and we begin to wake up and live in light of that new separated life. One of the reasons that we know that no matter how weak you are morally, no matter how easily distracted you are, no matter how many times you've made great resolutions and failed, no matter how many times you've had to go back to Christ if you're a Christian and say, I have once again broken your commands. I have put myself above you again. I don't know how I can do that. And it's, it is my greatest sorrow in life that I still do that at times. So whether you're coming the first time or the thousandth time, Christ is sufficient because in the plan of God, he is the guarantee of your sanctification. He separated you. He guarantees the transformation. Let me give you some more. He is sufficient to make you holy because in the great work of salvation, God has some very specific purposes. And we might be surprised when we read the Bible if we read it as if we'd never read it before and not read it as if we already under, you know, as if you already know what that chapter says. Do you ever do that? It's a terrible habit, but it's so easy to fall into. You begin to read, you know, Romans chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Oh, wait, I know chapter three. 
We've all, we're all sinners. Oh, Christ is the propitiation through Christ. And you think, I, I already know what the rest of the chapter says. And so as you're reading, your brain has gone into neutral. But if you read your Bible from beginning to end, you might be surprised to find that God has clearly explained his purposes in saving people who were his enemies. And they, these purposes are not all about you not getting the paycheck that you earned. It's not about us not being punished. There is something far greater. There is the glory of God. Steve read a verse this morning that talks about that. We'll look at it in a minute. It is so that you might become in, in, the, in the outworking of God's restoring of all things. You would become as, an, as a very insignificant individual. You would become a wonderful display, a significant, timeless display of the perfections of your Savior. That people who look at you and know that you are imperfect, in your imperfection, they still see something different. They see the realities of Christ. And you declare by your life and by your words that there isn't anybody that compares to him. But for that to be real, for that purpose to be accomplished, there are other things, other purposes that lead to that. In case you're afraid that God's purposes are like our purposes, um, good intentions, well-meaning, wishful thoughts. Do you remember what Job said at the end of his book? After God has dealt with Job in a way that, you know, alarms Job and confuses all of his friends, when they look at Job's hard life, they say, basically, we have never seen anybody have such a bad time as you've had. So you must be secretly living this double life and you need to hurry up and confess it before you're dead. Job, God doesn't do this to nice people. You're, you're doing something behind the scenes. And Job, who is an imperfect man but not living a double life, says, no, I'm not doing what you think. At the end of all the struggles and the thoughts and the questions that come and the, and the answers that are right and some of them are wrong, at the end of the book, Job sees God in a way he's never seen him before. God has restored Job. God takes Job in, in these final chapters. It's like he takes him for two long walks and he asks Job questions you know, Job, you've given a lot of really big theological answers throughout your book. You're a pretty impressive fellow, Job. So maybe if you could answer some of my questions and these questions just demonstrate to Job that he doesn't know anything. And so Job, at the end of these questions, says that he's talked too much. Now he's going to put his hand over his mouth and he's going to keep shut up. Job says about God. I have seen him with the seeing of the eye. He's not saying he saw God in a vision. He goes on to say, I once only heard with the hearing of the ear. In other words, things I have learned through these difficult times and the answers that God gave. I have seen, I have learned things about God that are so clear now. It's like seeing compared to hearing. And what does he learn? And he says this. I know that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's one of the things he learned. If God has a purpose, it will be accomplished. And there is nothing in all of creation, even if it's all aligned against God's throne, there's nothing that will prevent that. The purposes of God in salvation have to affect the way you follow him. Because it, it changes what you think. God, why are you being so kind to me? And how does that change the way that I make choices today? Chuck read in 1 John chapter 3 that one of the great reasons that Christ has done all that he's done is to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, to, to put down that which destroys and ruins creation and, and lives. So he will remedy Every problem that has come into our existence through self-exaltation. John calls sin there lawlessness. I know that when we say the word sin in church, it's just like Charlie Brown's parents. You know, wah, wah, wah. You can't. You, oh, it's a church word. What is sin? It's lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Well, it's when you and I, even though we know it's not true, 
And we would be really embarrassed to say it to the people that we live with or work with. But we're not embarrassed to act like it's true. It's when you and I act as if there is no being in the universe higher than ourselves. There is no God. There is no king in the land. That makes me king. That means everything exists for me. And I have a right to do what I want to do. I am entitled beyond any of your estimations. And every person is born thinking that. So John says Christ has come to destroy in us. In, that's one aspect of it. That attitude that says I'm king. Do you imagine that Christ has been sent by the father to put right the ruins of sin in the cosmos, in the galaxies, in creation, which Paul says, if you look at creation, you can see something's twisted and wrong. This is not a safe place to live. Even the earth, he says, you know, using anthropomorphism, even the earth is like a person who groans under the burden of humanity's sin. Do you think that God has sent Christ to correct that, but he will leave sin as your master, if you're his follower? In Romans 6, Paul says, we've been delivered from this kingdom of darkness, brought into a kingdom of light, and the result is this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lust. Do not wake up anymore and let the thought that you are the most significant person in the universe, do not let that be the guiding reason for anything you do or plan, or say, or how you respond. Paul goes on to say, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as righteousness, as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. You can do this, he says, because you're not under the law. The law, a perfect moral guide, which couldn't enable you, couldn't strengthen you, is not what you're hoping in. You're hoping in Christ to strengthen you. To do what's right. So when we think of these things, we realize that the great purposes of God, what are they? Can I give you just a few? First Peter 2 9. This is what Steve read earlier. You are a chosen right, uh, sorry, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then you come to this phrase, so that, so that. If you want to get a tattoo, so that's a great tattoo. So that. Don't forget it. There's a purpose. There's not a period. You're a, you're a priesthood. You're a royal nation. You're God's possession. Period. No, no period. There's this purpose phrase. There's the aim of God. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How? Let me give you another passage. Ephesians 2. We are probably all familiar with this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. But uh, or for. For we are his workmanship. His project. Created in Christ Jesus. For. There's the purpose. For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So there are acts of selfless love and godly, good and right things that God has intended for every believer to do. And he has prepared you for them and is working in you so that you would walk in them in the everyday common choices. I'll give you another one. Titus 2. Christ gave himself for us to, there's the word, there's the purpose, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To get you away from the old way you lived and to, the other side of it, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Have you stopped and thought, I know that Christ is sufficient to save me and to make me a disciple. Because one of the great purposes for which he was sent, and his purposes are always accomplished, 
is that he would purchase me for himself and make me a person who is zealous, who is over the top about doing the right things, about good deeds. Titus 3, he says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But then he says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Then toward the end of that passage, he says this. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed the Christian will be careful to engage in good deeds. There we have it. How do I know that Christ can really disciple me? Because Christ has been sent to accomplish the Father's purposes, and those purposes include that you would be a part of his his everlasting renown and honor, and that means he will make you, train you, teach you to be obedient, zealous for good works, and careful to engage in good deeds. Let me give you another thing. He has been sent to be the guarantee of your sanctification, to accomplish the purposes of this great work, but he also guarantees that you will have everything you need by his work on the inside of you. So much we could say. Think about the new birth or a new nature. Again, this was mentioned this morning. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It's not just that Christ comes along and teaches you to do better or to kind of clean up what you've got. He he raises you from a grave of self-centeredness and an unresponsive arrogant indifference to God and suddenly you are aware of him and aware of the truths of the Bible and things matter now and you are forgiven and you are separated and you are now with a new nature, a a new birth. You are new and part of the newness is that there are new desires In the Old Testament, we read about this often. Let me give you just one where it talks about what God would do when he sends the Messiah. Ezekiel 36, he says this. Then, then, when I send my son, then, when I rescue my people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft, responsive heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, a path of obedience. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. A new nature, a new resident. That's what we just read. He will put his spirit within his people. Yes, Philippians 2 talks about that. Paul says, work out your salvation. Work it into every area of life. You know the verse, with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He gives you the desire, the will, and the ability to obey. The Christian can never say, God, I know that, you know, I can't do what's right. You can, you must, you will. Because Christ has given you his spirit. In Colossians 1, in Ephesians 1, again in Ephesians 3, when Paul prays for the churches, we find that one of the things that Paul prays for is that by the work of the spirit, the Christian would understand the things they're studying in in this book. And these words would, in a sense, come off the page. And these concepts... And these promises would no longer just be, you know, stuff in the top of your mind floating around, but that they would find their way down into everyday life and you would apply them and live on them and risk everything on them. And then you would experience them. And the spirit is the one that does it. It, There's another reason we could say that Christ's work in you guarantees that you will be transformed, and that is by this spirit, in this new nature, you're given a new fuel. 
a whole new fuel. We used to be good people when we wanted to be good people, and the fuel was pride, was me, what I wanted out of it. It seemed to us to to offer us so much more if we would do what was right in this situation than if we did what was wrong. But when you come to Christ, he begins that work in you and the spirit puts a completely new fuel. It is love. Christ talks about it, John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But 50 years later, John writes that letter that Chuck read this morning. And in chapter two, He talks about the fact, well, in chapter four, he talks about the fact that we don't love him first. He loves us first. And that's the only reason we love him back. I mean, that's the great problem. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But but I don't love you. And then he loves us first. He forgives us. And in Luke, Christ says, those have been given, forgiven much, loved much. And Paul talks about it later as well. In Romans 5. The spirit of God has shed abroad. It's like he broke the dam and love, this unexpected love from the God that we fought against flows over your life like a like this tsunami. You know, it just reaches everything. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, this love of God compels me, constrains me. Paul, why do you live differently? Oh, I'm compelled Oh, does your church tell you you have to be good? You know, no, it's not a straitjacket from the outside. From within, I am compelled to obey God. I am constrained by his love. Christ is enough to disciple any of us if we come to him on his terms, no matter how spiritually disappointing you are, because Christ does something in you that guarantees the transformation Another one, the work of Christ in transforming us is just part of the greater picture of what he does. If you think of Romans chapter eight, again, it's a, it's a verse that we read over, but have you noticed it? There are a series of things that are promised. These are aspects of God's work in saving you. So Christ has come to make sure that these are going to be applied to everyone who comes to him. Romans eight, verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he loved you beforehand. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Having loved you, having chose you, he has also chosen Christ likeness. But then he goes on so that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these, the very people that he loved, knew, chose and predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Right. The gospel goes out and. We respond. And these whom he called, he also justified, forgave and clothed with righteousness. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you look at those links, if we had time to stop there, you would see there's a very definite order. God's choosing comes before our responding. But there is also not just order. There is an unbreakable connection It has never been broken in one of God's people. If you are a believer, you are in a new covenant with God. And this contract, this of grace, this covenant includes all of these things. But they're like links in a golden chain. They cannot break. If one breaks, then the whole thing falls apart. And part of that is this. Every person that's justified will one day be glorified. Everybody that's chosen will be molded into the image of Christ. There is no such thing as a person who has come to Christ and received part of the work. I've been justified. I've been called. What about sanctified? No, that's optional. No, it's not. And there's no person that can come and say, I've become a better person because of Jesus. What about that free justification? What about the atoning death of Christ? Oh, no, I didn't need that. I've just become a better person. And All of those that Paul mentions in Romans, and he doesn't mention everything, but all of those are essential and all of those are unbreakably linked. You cannot be declared right with God through the finished work of Christ and not at the same time be a person who is not separated 
not being changed. They go together. We sang a hymn earlier by Augustus Toplady. The tune is a dreary tune. I mean, sometimes we have dreary tunes, but I really think this is a dreary tune. I like dreary tunes. I don't like this dreary tune because it reminds me of funerals. Does it remind you of funerals? Rock of Ages? Rock of Ages? Augustus Toplady in the 1700s, a minister in the Anglican church wrote this. It's great. Just remind you of one verse because he pulls this all together. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee in Christ. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flowed the picture of what happened at the cross. Let that cross do what be of sin, the double cure save from wrath and make me pure. Both. I want to give you one more in this last reason that Christ is sufficient to disciple you because he is sufficient to separate you and to make you holy. This is one that we're going to be looking at a lot in the future, but it is that Christ is the example of holiness. Christ's life was lived by obeying the word of his father, and we're going to look at that. But when Christ saves us, he does not stand behind the Christian and say, Go forward. Cornelius Tyree, the writer of that little book, The Glorious Sufficiency of Christ, says, no, Christ is always ahead saying, follow. How can Christ say that the Christian life is following him? Why doesn't he say, go back to that book and read the thousand plus pages and do everything that's mentioned? Because he is the embodiment of every aspect of the law kept perfectly, perfect motives. In Christ, it's like the law comes alive and walks in front of us. And it's the person you love more than any other person. It's the person that rescued you. He made you alive. He washed away your sins. He clothed you with his righteousness. He is transforming you. He has separated you. He is doing all of this as a part of a greater work. And when you see him, the Christian loves him. And so the path of obedience is Wonderful for the Christian, not easy, but wonderful because your favorite person is on the path and you want as a Christian to walk as close to him as possible. There is a very definite path and that's what we're going to be talking about in the coming months. But it's the person on the path that makes it so attractive to you. The law of God is perfect. The path is a perfect path. It is laid perfectly. It is the happiest life. To obey God. But we are so, you know, malfunctioning that we could take even a perfect law and like the Jews of old, twist it and make it into something ugly. And this happens all the time. A person goes to church. They decide that maybe they're in trouble with God. They don't want to go to hell. Well, what, do you, what am I supposed to do? Well, surely they think it's natural. I'm supposed to be a better me. And so they grab all the rules and they piece together some type of goodness with God, they think, and you watch them and they quit doing all these things and they start doing all these things and it looks very religious, but it's not the kind of life that you want to live. It's ugly. When you try to keep all the rules, but you don't love the king who loved you first, then it just becomes legalism and religious snobbery. But when you keep the rules because you love the rule maker, and he's at work in you, and you're living with him, it is the best and most beautiful of lives. There's a hymn that we don't sing. Um, it's an old hymn. Uh, I really like it. It gives this picture that it's Christ that makes holiness so attractive. I'll just give you two verses. I'm going to translate up you know, into modern English a few of the phrases. Have you heard him, Christ? Seen him? Known him? Is not yours a captured heart? Chief among 10,000, own him. Joyfully choose the better part. Captivated by his beauty, let his peerless worth, his unequaled worth, his unrivaled worth constrain you. Crown him now, your unrivaled king. 
What has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Why don't you live the way you used to live? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless, unrivaled worth. Well, we have a chance of putting that to the test this week and risking everything on the fact that Christ can do so much more than forgive. He can separate and transform you all the way to the end. Well, I'll read our doxology and then we'll just sit for a moment, quiet and be dismissed. Paul writes to the Romans, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.